Welcome to the University of Warwick podcast, where our credible experts introduce you to some incredible insights. Today we're asking, is modern life rubbish for the kids of today? Rapid technological advancements have meant our children and young people have more digital distractions than ever before. Friends can be contacted through social media. New acquaintances can be made through online gaming. Hours can be lost trawling through video entertainments on YouTube. And yet, bullying is rife on digital. Mental health issues affect young people across society in ever-increasing numbers. Is the Facebook age causing our young people to be unhappy? And if it is, what can we do to counter it? Or should we be counting our blessings that today's kids have phones that might be smarter than their parents? Some major studies have been made into how this fast-moving, digitally-led lifestyle we've all become accustomed to is affecting young people. Warwick's Dieter Volker, a professor of development psychology, is amongst those uncovering this insight. A review was done for, uh, by the Nuffield Foundation, investigated what has changed in time management, burden of homework, uh, stress with schooling, uh, parent supervision, etc., etc., and uh, on nearly every indicator, things have got better. They have more pocket money. Children and adolescents have to work less, like doing a, a job, particularly adolescents. They do better, the marks are better, more do A-levels. Uh, they have less homework than they used to have. The only thing that has really changed to the negative is that they spend much more time in traveling to go to their schools because of the choices uh, which they have made. But otherwise, all these objective indicators show in a positive direction also in parenting. In parenting, even in the lower social classes, more monitoring than they used to be, for example, 40 years ago. So what we call this is the wealth paradox. Everything gets better objectively, but young people feel worse in their well-being. And the question is, how can we understand this? There are fewer challenges, in a way, even though they would say we are so under stress from school and so on, with a comparison level, uh, they fail less often and are often protected. But this, of course, gets lost once they leave the home. I mean, going to university where they have to cope with all of the normal tasks, like from cooking, eating, sleeping, organizing, budgeting, and learning. And if you have never learned to do this before, it becomes much more difficult. Having been quite protected, you don't learn coping mechanisms. And it's very important that you, I mean, if you prepare someone, for example, for university or work life, one of the things is uh, you should learn how to cook. You need to learn how to budget. You need to know how to actually organize your life. I mean, like for example, daily on the calendar. Uh, so there are a number of different things, but often the experience is, oh, you just do your exams, we do everything else. But in a way, we take away skills, which we should have learned. You don't send someone out on the ocean without a good boat. You know, you don't put them in the dinghy and just say you sail along. And so it's very important for parents to think about this. Doing everything for your child can be as abusive than actual abuse because you leave them stranded like on a dinghy on a big ocean, which they find very difficult and they can't pluck the holes. And then they need other, need other help. 
But a more protective parental approach is not the only societal change to have an effect on how young people view and interact with the world around them. Years ago, we would just compare ourselves to the Joneses. And if you've got a house on a particular road, they're all the same houses, or more or less the same, and they're very similar. And there's a small comparison that takes place. But now with the social media, of course, the whole world is the comparison. And it's very rare that someone uh, posts a picture of depression on, but it's usually parties, laughing, and we're having a good time, holiday pictures, and so on. So that the feeling comes that my life is worse than all of the other people out who go on holidays who have got these great parties and so on. Rebecca Woolley is Community Engagement Manager at Warwick. She oversees a variety of activities to help students think about their well-being when away from home for the first time. The ever-present mobile phone is an issue that many struggle to manage. I, th I think for us it's about the students being constantly attached to their phone and their social media. So you often see students in the library they'll have their work on one device and then they'll have the social media on another device. So it's there constantly. And we have had students approach us this year to say, could we do something in terms of taking their phones off them so that they can get on with their revision? So one of the things we're doing is an event where students come, they leave their phones behind and they all come, they, they, they just work together. Uh, totally um, free from distractions. Um, so that's interesting because that's them asking us to do that. So yes, it is a problem for them. Wellbeing Support have done a session for us as well on trying to get over those distractions, how you manage social media and so on as well. And it's, it's just about being sensible, I think, um, and, and it's everything in moderation because we promote a lot of our stuff through social media, so we don't want students to turn it off totally. Um, and uh, we, we love the Twitter comments that, that come through, for example. But it's about getting that balance and knowing when too much is too much. It's not just a question of quantity, but also of understanding. Dieter believes that education is the key to helping young people develop a healthier relationship with digital technology. And I think it would be very important to learn media savviness, to actually learn how real this is. When do you put picture on? I mean, you don't, picture, don't put a picture on if you're alone and so on. You put them on if you're in social contact or in a nice environment and so on. So it's a very biased view of the world. And I think with the, having the social media and comparison uh, uh, it would be really important to have training programs just like people have done for children to understand whether an advert is a lie or is part of the truth or uh, is actually the truth to distinguish between this. So it's important also on the social media to distinguish. So you say to get a, uh, get a realistic expectation what other people are up to. There's no question that young people today face challenges that previous generations didn't. But a major factor affecting mental health is sadly nothing new. It's bullying. But just how big is the problem? And what are the long-term effects on the mental health of those involved? Coming back to what's the prevalence in the UK is around 25% of kids will experience it and about 8 to 10% over years. So if we think that there are six to 700,000 births a year, looking at all the classroom, we're talking about hundreds of thousands or millions of kids affected every year. 
And there are different people involved in bullying. Uh, there's a small group who are ringleader bullies. And we actually found these ringleader bullies who are very dominant, are actually very popular with most of the other kids. And they do very well. We don't find any mental health consequences. In fact, they're the healthiest still in early adulthood. And then you've got the two groups who become victims. They're the pure victims who never fight back, are not involved in bullying. And they have got a number of uh, different problems which they can develop, from, uh, ranging from self-harm, suicide, depression, anxiety, psychotic disorder, more sleep problems. The list goes on. And there is now, there are 58 longitudinal studies now, on the last counting, which absolutely demonstrate the devastating effects it still has into adulthood, not just for a year or two, but in adulthood, if this has happened often over a year, two, three, four years, not just for a short period. And just to say there's a third group who are often called the provocative victims. Uh, we call them the bully victims. So they get victimized and they try to fight back, but they're not successful. They're often just the assistant doing the dirty work for the ringleader bullying yeah, and uh, uh, join in. And they're actually at the bottom of the pile. They're even worse than the victims because they try to fight back, but they're completely uh, ineffective in this because they get just tossed around. They're very much disliked. So it's, uh, it's really you, you, you end up not liked by anyone being unsuccessful and being socially defeated. While the negative long-term impact of bullying may not come as a surprise, research into the causes of bullying has revealed some more unexpected results. What we know that there are very large differences between countries. For example, countries who are more equal uh, uh, economically, like Denmark, Norway, Sweden and things, have the lowest rates in the world. And countries where have got higher inequality, which, like the United States, Israel, or also the United Kingdom, have got much higher rates of bullies. And it has been interpreted as indicating if you have got high inequality and you allow this to happen, as then any way to get ahead is okay. And I think we have seen this in recent political elections and so on, that it's perfectly okay to go ahead however you behave. Uh, and that, of course, is translated, transmitted to the children. And so the anti-bullying programs, people always ask, so why are the anti-bullying programs in Norway and Finland, why are they leading? Because they're very sensitive to this, compared to societies where you've got larger inequality. And we even found this in the classroom. So if you create a large hierarchy yeah, of dominance, yeah, of who's like, not, and uh, how you uh, address them, give them interest, and so on, uh, the more, the higher the rates uh, of bullying. Andrew Oswald is a professor of economics and behavioural science at the University of Warwick. He specialises in research on human happiness and agrees that economics have a strong influence on mental well-being. Very early on, when we were looking at happiness data and mental health data, we realised that income was a strong predictor. So the first thing you see, consistent with what you, we teach our students in theory, is that happiness rises with income, but in a curved way. So it's getting flatter as you go up. That was the, that, as soon as we started to look at happiness equations, which are statistical patterns, that's what you see. Then you see a huge negative effect from unemployment. Mm -hmm.
Professor Swaran Singh is a professor of social and community psychiatry. And although there is a greater understanding of what factors can impact on young people's well-being, Swaran believes indicators suggest that mental health conditions in young people are not becoming more prevalent. Where serious mental disorders like psychosis are concerned, there is no evidence that it is increasing. We are treating people early. By and large, most people with psychosis will eventually come to the attention of services. So what we are doing now is that we are getting to people early and making sure that they don't become chronically disabled and chronically impaired. But there is no evidence that the core rate of that condition is increasing. At a community level, the number of new cases per year is between 18 to 20 per 100,000 population per year. So if you take the city of Birmingham with a population of a million, by these figures, you'd get between 180 to 200 new cases per year. However, the, the spread is not uniform. And just like other mental health conditions, research shows that psychosis is linked to a number of integrated factors. So there are huge differences between rural and urban areas. So urban areas have a lot more cases than rural areas. Then there are huge differences in areas with ethnic minorities versus non-ethnic minorities are at particular risk of developing first episode psychosis, primarily because of their social circumstances. They are more likely to have deprivation, marginalization, discrimination, family breakdown, urban upbringing, drug use, all of these are risk factors for psychosis. So the more deprived urban area that you're dealing with, the higher the rates of psychosis. So if you go from, say, leafy Surrey to Lambeth, the rates of psychosis keep increasing. So it's not a uniform spread. But at a population level, it's about 18 to 20 new cases per 100,000 population per year. There is no doubt that you can be genetically predisposed to mental illness and disorders like uh, schizophrenia, uh, manic depression, even alcoholism. Having an affected family member increases your risk of developing the condition. But it's just a risk probability. There is no inevitability to it. So just because you have a family member with a mental illness does not mean that you will have a mental illness. And conversely, you may develop a mental illness without having a family history. So it's not one gene, one mental illness. So there is some vulnerability to mental illnesses that is conferred by your genetic makeup. But it's just a question of vulnerability without inevitability. We have collected a lot of evidence to show that the problems that ethnic minority face are in their social circumstances. It puts them at higher risk of mental illness. And NHS has to work with our local ethnic minority communities to reach out to those groups. Um, for many years, the received wisdom was that psychiatry was doing something wrong in identifying mental illness. So the charge was that psychiatry is institutionally racist because we were diagnosing mental illness uh, 
in very high rates in ethnic minorities and when they came into services they came under a section of the mental health act so the charge was that psychiatrists were unable unwilling or downright prejudicial in their dealings with ethnic minorities so we misdiagnosed their conditions and having misdiagnosed it we treated them in a heavy-handed and coercive manner so we have shown quite conclusively in the last 10 years that this is not right psychiatry is the source of help for ethnic minorities we are not the cause of their problems ethnic minority groups suffer from higher rates of mental illness because of their social circumstances so we've heard that the mental health issues experienced by young people today arise not as the media might suggest from spending too much time on facebook but from a complex mix of parenting approaches power dynamics economics genetics and education but help is at hand Study Happy started in 2014 and we, we, we launched it for the exam term and it ran over four weeks of that term. And it was a series of activities to help the students feel less stressed and understand the importance of taking a break. We did some creative things like a bit wacky things like origami. We did our adult colouring. Uh, which the students really liked. We did fruit giveaways, so they stopped to have their banana, but we didn't just give stuff away, we also asked them to um, give us a tip in return. So they gave us some revision tips. And these was really nice because they're student to student and um, somebody saying, listen to Beyonce is fine from a student, but if it were to come from me, it wouldn't sound very good. It sounded like their mum telling them to do something. <laughs> so they respond really well to the tips. And we've actually put that into our Study Happy app as well that we've got. We also did some physical stuff, some activity stuff, uh, because we liked, we, we um, based the programme around the five ways to well-being, which includes being active, connecting with others, uh, learning, um, uh, giving and taking notice. And so we'll have things like desk assize, they come in and do that. And they do pop-up sports with table tennis and hula hoop, which is really good. And we also promoted the wellbeing walk that the wellbeing support services was doing. Um, so again, very nicely tying in with different departments around the university that all helped to promote wellbeing. We had the pets as therapy dogs as well in, and people can just, just stroke the dog to make them feel feel more relaxed so we'll probably let in say 15 students at a time and they come in and they sit down with the volunteer and the dog and they just chat to the volunteer and stroke the dogs so the students are really enjoying that but the other thing I think is lovely about the pets therapy session is that the a lot of volunteers are of uh, the generation of the parents or even grandparents of the students and in chatting to them, I think what we see is that they're, they're really enjoying that conversation and it's taking them back to their home environment. Mm -hmm. And so they're getting that sense of belonging at Warwick yeah. because they're feeling at home. It's really, really nice. And some of them are quite emotional, the students, after it, because it, it's just so lovely for them. And as I say, it reminds them a lot that they're pets or of home and um, you know some of them say oh it nearly made me cry but it was so lovely and you know they think of things like best day ever at Warwick so far and things like that so it, it, it does go down really well and these days as well 
wellbeing support team come are there in the room as they go out and give us the feedback and then there's another opportunity for them to talk to the team and find out about the different opportunities that there are to uh, think about wellbeing. It's also very important to learn about failure. I mean, for example, I wouldn't be an academic or wouldn't stay in academia because we have failures all the time. Grants get rejected, publications come back. And it's about the persistence and dealing with it and also critically not blaming the outside world that they're all against you or something, but actually take it and say, these are really good comments. I can do better, you know, next time. And this is the story of all successful academics is that they fall back, uh, they had failures and there was, was persistence. So it's, uh, it's really important. The best thing you can do is to face up to the problem and say something is not right. If in your gut you feel something is not right, act on it. It is entirely understandable and a human reaction to try and minimize it. Nobody wants to think of their children as developing a serious mental illness. But wishful thinking doesn't help. So if you are worried, seek help. Looking to the future, knowing what we know about the causes and effects of mental health issues in young people, how can research findings make a real and positive impact on the ground? In a nutshell, I'd be pleased if our work uh, leads governments to change their criteria for success. And there's been an astonishing change in that way. A lot of it's not visible yet. What I'd like to see is better services for vulnerable young people. So for me, the greatest impact would be if, if those who need help get it in a timely, accessible, appropriate, effective manner. We are some way from that, but we are way ahead from where we were. Mental illnesses afflict the young and rob them of their most productive years. As a society, we just cannot afford to lose so many young people to the ravages of mental illness. We simply do not invest enough in mental health care. This is being recognised increasingly by everyone, including all three major political parties in this country. Fortunately for us and for our, our, our citizens, mental health has become a non-partisan matter. So the government, successive governments, Successive ministers have pledged to increase investment in mental health. It's not, it's not all, all turned up as yet, it's not, but there is certainly a head of steam building up in politics, in, in policy, that the neglect of mental health is not just distressing for sufferers and their families, it's a huge societal expense. Uh, so, investment in mental health care makes clinical sense, is the right thing to do morally, ethically, and socially, and it's also good for UK PLC. It's good for our country's uh, economic health. Investment in mental health care gives very good return on investment. Ultimately, the consensus amongst our experts seems to be that the overall outlook for young people today is a positive one. GPs have become so much better 
in the last 10-15 years in identifying mental disorders, starting treatment even, and referring appropriately. It doesn't work all the time with everyone, but there is a sea change now in how primary care deals with mental illness as compared to say 15, 20 years ago. So if you are worried, talk to someone, seek help. There is a lot of help out there. And remember, all these disorders are treatable. They are eminently treatable. We have very, very effective treatments. And the earlier we intervene, the better it is for you and for your family. That was Is Modern Life Rubbish for Kids Today, a University of Warwick podcast. If you want to find out more about this topic, our experts, or future episodes in our podcast series, visit the University of Warwick website and search for podcasts. We'd love to hear your views too. You can share these on Twitter by searching for the hashtag CredibleIncredible. And you can keep up to date with the rest of the University of Warwick podcast series by subscribing to iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us again in a few weeks' time for the next incredible podcast from our credible experts. Goodbye. Goodbye.